0: Hello, I'm Kristen Wedding, a fellow with the CSIS Global Food Security Project. I'm here today with Johanna Nesseth-Tuttle, director of the CSIS Global Food Security Project and vice president for strategic planning, and Dan Rundy, director of the Project of Prosperity and Development at CSIS. Recently, we hosted a conference on expanding private sector investment and public-private partnerships in African agriculture and nutrition. Some of the topics we focused on were agribusiness development in Africa in a time of global food price volatility, US government partnerships with African private sector partners, and market-based solutions to nutrition and links to agriculture. Today, I'd like to ask Johanna and Dan a few questions to go further in depth on these issues. Johanna and Dan, thank you for joining us. High food prices are in the news again. This time oil prices have also soared and will inevitably drive food prices even higher. Can you talk about some of the progress that has been
1: made since the price spikes of 2008? Well, I've been asked over time, over the past several months, about high food prices and how high are they going to go and are we getting back to the point where that we reached in 2008 when food prices had climbed over the years to historical highs and then had an incredible spike. And this created instability, it created um, a dramatic rise in the number of hungry people in the world, but it also created a real outpouring of interest and support for improving U.S. and um, other countries' response to food insecurity. What we're seeing today started with food price spikes. We've seen instability in the Middle East, we've seen uh, rising prices of a few staple crops, and this will undoubtedly be further exacerbated by skyrocketing oil prices oil is reaching a dollar five or 105 dollars a barrel and this is going to drive food prices higher because first of all the cost of oil for delivery and um, processing of food makes food prices higher especially in in countries where Um, food is more processed than in other places and also the inputs for agriculture and for next year's planting will be more costly as well. Fertilizer and uh, oil and gas and other inputs are going to further drive costs higher over the next several months. Now what's happened since 2008 I think is really promising. Since 2008, the U.S. government has made a $3.5 billion commitment to agricultural development and food security. This is unprecedented. It's the first time in decades that the U.S. has really faced food security and faced uh, ag development in a very serious way. Um, There's a program called Feed the Future that was rolled out about a year ago, and um, the administration is in the process of implementing, um, implementing Feed the Future. It's looking at developing markets, for f- smallholder farmers to grow more food and get their food to markets and get higher prices. It looks at improving nutrition for better food security and better health. And then thirdly, uh, Feed the Future is looking at how, how to raise productivity, especially among smallholder farmers. The Green Revolution um, in the 1960s and 70s, never really reached Africa. And there's a strong effort afoot, not just from the U.S. government, but from other uh, developed country governments, foundations, and uh, NGOs to really promote a green revolution in Africa.
0: The United States has committed $3.5 billion for agricultural development. Given the magnitude of investments needed for roads, infrastructures, and markets, it is clear that the government funds will not be sufficient for the type of progress that is needed, especially in countries in Africa where the Green Revolution did not take hold. What are some of the areas that require a private investment to flourish?
1: Well, that, that, this question is just such an important one because – the investments for agriculture are just incredible. Investments the U.S. and other countries have made in health are large, they're significant, um, and they're very important. But with uh, with health systems, usually you're starting with sort of a central point of delivery of services. And with agriculture, it's exactly the opposite, because Farmers are spread out, farmers' groups are spread out, and you have to try to bring people together in order to deliver services. So $3.5 billion is just its an incredible uh, improvement. It builds into a $22 billion uh, commitment that the G8 made uh, in 2009. But at the same time, it's, you can never have enough money to develop the kind of markets and infrastructure that are needed to really improve uh, smallholder farmers' livelihoods and improve their access to markets. So. The the Millennium Challenge Corp. is doing some work on infrastructure development, um, and you've got AID and the U.S. with the Feed the Future initiative working on these other areas. But really, we're going to need to have all sectors involved. So on the research side, we need to have companies, we need to have NGOs, we need to have foundations, and we need to have the government all investing in research for foods and and products that are going to be useful in developing countries. Right now, the research... um, the research agenda is really driven largely by private companies and it really focuses on wealthier countries and the types of crops that are grown there, corn and soybeans especially. So having a more focused research agenda to develop water efficient types of um, seeds and to develop the types of products that are going to be more appealing uh, in more staple crops in developing countries like cassava for example, these are going to be really important methods to improve productivity, and that's going to take a holistic approach. On infrastructure, we're going to need uh, multilateral investors. We're going to need African governments. We're going to need a lot of different groups investing in infrastructure and making that work. And then finally, in terms of education, in terms of um, networks, you're going to need a lot of private investment and private um, market supply chain development from farmers to Uh, processors to storage areas to grocery stores. Uh, That's a chain that is really a private-led opportunity and private-led chance for growth and profit, actually, that's going to be more appealing than it would be and more possible than it would be with just government investment.
0: Thanks, Johanna. Dan, I'd like to turn to you now. Could you please talk about the state of private investment in African agriculture? What are the main barriers to attracting private sector investment, and what role can governments and multilateral institutions play?
2: Thanks. I think there's been a renewed interest largely in agriculture for a number of different reasons. One has been in a set of intellectual drive, drivers. Uh, one has been the research that the World Bank has done. There was this very well-known report called the World Development Report in 2008, uh, I think the administration's uh, focus on Feed the Future has also put renewed focus on agriculture. And I think a lot of the, the impetus for this, rethinking about agriculture, has come from the Gates Foundation over the last five or more years. On, this, on the one hand, there's been a series of intellectual pushes from uh, development sources of various kinds, US government, philanthropy, the World Bank. On the other hand, there's been increasing rise in commodity prices that have also attracted interest for uh, private sector investment as well. Some of this is long-term driven as uh, middle-income countries such as uh, India or China begin to want to eat more meat or want to begin to eat. Changes in their diet are driving up the prices of food commodities. In addition, there have been a series of shorter-term issues in terms of crop failures in Russia or or, or disappointing uh, crop turnout in Argentina and other Latin American countries. So these changes, both intellectual and changes in perceptions of supply and demand, have driven increasingly driven private sector investment into agriculture in Africa. In addition, there's been a third force has been sovereign wealth funds. There have been a number of uh, funds from emerging market countries, and some of them petroleum powers and some of them not, who've been looking to ensure secure sources of food. In essence, opting out of commodity markets, and they've wanted to. They've uh, been buying up large tracts of land. Some have called them these land grabs. So, leads to this issue of what can the what can bilateral donors do? What can multilateral donors do? What are the what are the what are some of the the challenges for for investment? One of the one of the challenges is is in an enabling environment where investments are uh, perceived as safe. Uh, issues such as land tenure is something that's of particular importance. Another is the ability to actually export agricultural products. Um, a third area is on physical infrastructure. Uh, so there are any number of different challenges in, in Africa to, ensure, to attract private investment. Uh, one of many, there are many ways in which bilateral donors and multilateral donors can support the emergence of private sector driven agriculture in Africa. Some are making improvements in the enabling environment. Some are, one of the most important things you can do is to link farmers to global agriculture markets, to help farmers move away from pure subsistence farming to some sort of uh, market-driven agriculture. That doesn't necessarily mean, so it means, it, it may mean that they end up growing sugar as opposed to something that they can eat but if they're participating in a global market on sugar and able to feed their families and buy a, a motorcycle or, or put a roof over their heads, that is, in my mind, food security or provide security for, for their families. So linking farmers to markets is one of the most important ways uh, bilateral donors and multilateral donors can be supportive. There are also any number of different soft infrastructure activities that can be supported by bilateral and multilateral donors. These can include supporting farmer field schools, uh, establishing agri dealers. These are chains of vendors of selling seeds and farm implements that provide advice. Oftentimes, it requires some startup technical assistance, but they're run on a market-driven basis. They're, in essence, small small-time franchisees, and, and this is all at, at the end of the day, private investment, oftentimes from from smaller micro entrepreneurs. Uh, Obviously, other forms of technical assistance, Uh, Joanna was talking about value chain, working on these linkages. As we plug smallholder farmers into global markets, it requires assistance on ensuring quality, meeting phytosanitary standards, uh, being aware of changes in prices, perhaps organizing in larger organizations in terms of cooperatives or other larger organizations. So this sort of technical assistance is the sort of work that Uh, bilateral donors are very comfortable doing and work with an ecosystem of partners to help do that.
0: Can you discuss some of the key elements of public-private partnerships that would make for effective investments and encourage long-term development?
2: It's clear that even with these opportunities, uh, any number of different industries that are seeking to source agricultural products from Africa or elsewhere in the world, can't handle many of the, the larger public challenges alone um, in terms of training up a large enough group of farmers or in terms of ensuring um, that there's enough infrastructure to get agricultural products to market. There are any number of different public goods challenges that often should and ought to be shared with private actors but that allow for an opportunity for the, for the public sector to partner with the private sector. I can think of a couple quick examples when USAID worked with Starbucks to help jumpstart the coffee industry in Rwanda after the Rwandan genocide there wasn't a a quality coffee industry in Rwanda but the uh, the geography of the country of Rwanda were was was very coffee friendly so the United States government brought in a number of partners to help with the training and establishment of cooperatives and helping to set up washing stations and training and, and various coffee companies, including Starbucks, came in with their tacit knowledge about quality, helping with tasting, uh, also co funded some of the technical assistance work, but then also offered the most important thing of all, which was to say if you meet all of these standards, we, Starbucks, and other coffee companies, will buy, will buy your coffee. And we talk a lot about sustainability and scale in the development business having the ability to plug smallholder farmers into these global markets, such as the coffee market, is a way in which we can ensure sustainability and ultimately over time scale for smallholder farmers. Another example has been the work that the U.S. government has done with the World Cocoa Foundation in West Africa. Again, there's a a need for an ever-growing supply of high-quality cocoa. There are only a few places in the world where cocoa is grown with the minimal amount of disease or or uh, pest infestation. One of these regions happens to be West Africa. To assure an ever-growing supply of quality cocoa, it requires training farmers in West Africa in the best, most productive ways to grow and care for cocoa trees or, or cacao trees. And at the same time, ensure that as new seedlings are planted gene plasms are, are, are put out into the into the into the fields that the new gene plasms are the most disease resistant and insect resistant as possible and there's been significant investments in agricultural research by cocoa companies in partnership with the u.s. department of agriculture to develop strains of cocoa uh, of cacao trees that are insect and disease and, and uh, and pest-resistant and disease-resistant. So uh, USAID has partnered with the cocoa industry for about 10 years to help train up uh, smallholder farmers through farmer field schools to ensure that this gene plasm is distributed to help organize smallholder farmers and also to support a variety of social services in agricultural communities where cocoa is grown as well. Uh, this, this partnership has been joined by the Gates Foundation over the last several years to help ensure even larger scale, and there's been partnerships with local governments as well. In addition, uh, there's been a number of different partnerships with other agricultural uh, crops, including the sugar industry. USAID helped put, bring about the largest foreign direct investment in Mali with a, setting up a sugar mill in Mali. And it's going to ultimately be, be an $800 million foreign direct investment in Mali, which is unheard of in the fifth poorest country in the world, I- employing thousands of smallholder farmers. This, is, this was a situation where the U.S. government co-funded the development of sugar varietals to, make to, some decis- to help investors make decisions about what were the best sugar varietals to grow, given the soil uh, makeup of uh, Mali there so any number of, in each of these cases these were challenges that were bigger than one company or a group of companies where the US government was helping to bridge a gap brought their expertise brought their convening power brought their knowledge of how to run projects and in some instance and they also helped bring in other partners over time so I would say it's about linking expertise finding an overlap of interests both business interests and it has to have an overlap of a development interest as well and has to have a very strong development outcome. In the case of the Mali sugar work, some people have questioned why would the US government support co-funding with a for-profit company the development of these sugar varietals. Well it's going to employ thousands of people, it has incredible development outcomes, it's going to make Mali a net exporter of sugar over time so, this has overriding development outcomes and incredible opportunity for the country of Mali. They've also discovered over time that some of the, the residue of the sugar cane can be used for biofuels as well. So, there have been all sorts of incredible spin offs. So, this was a small amount of risk, relatively small amount of risk capital to employ thousands of people and, and help develop the country of Mali, and so that over time we can graduate the country in, in the medium or longer term.
0: Johanna and Dan, thank you for sharing some of your insights on agricultural investment in Africa and some of the broader questions around the role of public-private partnerships in encouraging development.
2: Thanks for listening. To find more, visit CSIS.org, CSIS on iTunes U, or like us on Facebook.